0: sometimes the simplest of ideas become the most disruptive innovations are the words of our next guest as she passionately develops actionable research solutions with the goal of reforming the country's criminal justice system dr kerry pettis executive director of the institute for justice research and development at florida state university joins us to discuss her vision of reducing the reliance on the criminal justice system by providing solutions that promote the overall well-being of incarcerated individuals communities and professionals working within the system join us for this insightful timely and important conversation as dr pettis shares how she and her team are working towards making an impact in criminal justice reform using science-backed research and data-driven solutions let's go Dr. Pettis, welcome to our podcast. I'm so honored to meet up with you today.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Well, because of your passion to use science-backed research and data-driven solutions to ensure the justice system is equitable and effective, as well as your team's work related to mental health of incarcerated individuals, I'm eager to have this important conversation today. But before we dive in, a bit of housekeeping. While listening to any of our episodes, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast so you will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And lastly, please visit the bottom of the episode notes to connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Clubhouse in order to further the conversations occurring on this podcast. All right, Carrie, it's almost time for our community to learn how your team is using science to improve lives, communities, and institutions by developing and researching innovations that reduce unnecessary reliance on the criminal justice system. But first, what is that one piece of advice you would give others who are passionate about reimagining the health of our world?
1: I would say keeping things simple, right? So sometimes the simplest ideas become the most disruptive innovations. And this is what we've been doing in the criminal justice system is we're thinking about the World Health Organization's definition of health, which is that health is more than the absence of illness. It's about this overall mental well-being, social well-being, physical well-being. And we started thinking about that and saying, you know, we could make a big difference in our criminal justice system if we just started thinking about well-being. Moving beyond people surviving, well beyond people surviving and them thriving and achieving the most well-being they can have.
0: I love it. So I'm a big, big fan, Carrie, of KISS. Keep it simple, silly. Like get back to basics. Keep it simple. Don't overthink it. Don't overengineer it. Yep. Sometimes getting back to basics is where you find the biggest success. I get a fortunate opportunity to mentor and advise a lot of startups. And I sometimes say, don't overthink it. Keep it simple, silly. Would you agree?
1: I would agree. But the second S, I've heard a different word before.
0: I was trying to be a little bit more <laughs> inclusive on the podcast today. But right. yes, I've heard that as well. I think I know exactly the words you recommend or discussing, But yeah, keep it simple, silly. Yes. That was what I like to do.
1: And it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult because we dismiss our simplest ideas. Because if it was that simple, then somebody would have already done it. We tell ourselves.
0: I know right. We're like, "Oh, well, duh, I should have always been." No. Well, no, actually no. You know, sometimes it is. Sometimes people forget the simple way of doing it might be the most effective.
1: Right. Even my, you know, I said, like we right now in healthcare, especially in criminal justice settings, we're just focused on people surviving. We don't ever think about that's what we're doing in a lot of healthcare is just focusing on surviving. But really, if we want to really push things, how can our system be about people thriving?
0: Well, I can't wait to talk more about that. And I'm looking forward to discussing your incredible work and journey happening at the Institute for Justice Research and Development at Florida State University after we get back from thanking our community champion sponsor. Located in Denver, Colorado's nationally ranked River North District, Catalyst is a healthcare innovation campus that brings together stakeholders from across the industry to accelerate innovation and drive real lasting change our nation desperately needs. From established organizations to startups, from accelerators to advocacy organizations and from medical schools to global companies, everyone at Catalyst works side by side to create, Develop, refine, and bring to market cutting-edge innovations that will fundamentally transform healthcare as we know it. With industry leaders like Medical Group Management Association, Olive, Medical Solutions, UC Health, CirrusMD, and many others calling Catalyst home, along with innovative pioneers visiting from across the nation, Catalyst continually fosters their foundational belief that collaboration and partnerships will move the healthcare industry forward. To virtually tour catalyst and claim your space on campus or host an upcoming event visit catalysthealthtech.com or visit the top of the episode notes and click on their link all right we are back with dr carrie pettis executive director for the institute for justice research and development at florida state university first of all carrie go Knowles! when i grew up i was a big seminoles fan incredible football team amazing place and what an incredible institution and university as well. And you had an opportunity to found and launch your institute there at Florida State. We're going to talk about the journey. You now have been on it for a little over three years. Talk about how'd you get there? What were the aha moments? What brought you to launching an institute, standing it up? And then of course, where are things today? with the Institute, Kerry, what are you guys working on? What are those successes? And then we got to discuss, where do you see things heading? Of course, things are changing rapidly. We've seen the world change incredibly fast over the past 18 months, obviously exacerbated and compounded because of the pandemic and things are going to only continue to accelerate. So where do you see things heading? Not only for the Institute, but for our nation. And of course, we want to be able to help you out. So we'll be asking how we can plug in and help you and the team out over there at the Institute. But for now, Kerry, how'd this all come together in the first place? Think about this institute. How'd you get it off the ground?
1: Yeah, well, I won't talk forever, I promise, but this goes back more than 20 years, a lot more than 20 years, but I'm not going to say how many more, but I actually got really interested in prison reform work when I was 18, 19 years old. And I put on a suit and marched out to Washington, D.C. and interviewed one of our former associate attorney generals that went to prison for a couple of years after being drafted by the Chicago Bears and working for President Clinton and then he landed in prison so I thought wow that's quite a trajectory I want to understand that <laughs> yeah not one you really normally think of and so I went and when I interviewed him the despair and shame and pain in his face was just profound especially to 19 year old little me so I figured out I have to figure out this system and what's going on and there were a lot of twists and turns, as I'm sure you've experienced over your career. So sometimes I was outside of the walls trying to burn the prison down. Other times I was not literally, I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> but other times I was inside the walls trying to work within the system. And just over time, it finally occurred to me that a really good place to situate myself would be in a research setting where we could really use research To drive change, both with what's happening inside the walls and what's moving people to become incarcerated, and also our policies. We wanted to change the world, right? So I had a dream in my graduate school, my master's program, that someday I wanted to have a really large research center that was influencing the decisions of policymakers, influencing the decisions of people in the criminal justice system, and helping people to thrive and be well, who were getting out of our criminal justice system. So I actually had a research center before. I came to Florida State University, and it was thriving. And we talk about thinking about some of the twists and turns. And in that research center, I needed to go a different direction because of some political complications. And as that was happening... I started to look at where in the country might I have the most impact if I'm not in this location that I'm at now. And Florida is one of the largest states in the country. We have the third largest prison system in the country. We have a very diverse population here and an incredibly difficult government <laughs> to move. So I thought if we can figure things out in Florida, then we can figure them out anywhere. And so I developed some relationships at this university and they recruited me to come here and open a multidisciplinary center that was looking at data-driven solutions to criminal justice reform. I mean, I can talk for a long time about how I established the research center. I don't know how much you want me to go into the mechanics of doing that or what you're thinking, but...
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much for that journey. It is amazing to hear that even as a teenager, you were passionate about this space. Incredible. What was it like interviewing somebody that was a former NFL athlete, top of their game, literally in their sport, top of their game in their political career. We got to go there first. What was that like interviewing somebody like that person?
1: Yeah. All I can say was everything I could feel during that conversation was pain. (laughs) It destroyed his family. It destroyed his feeling of ever, you know, I think having accomplishment. And one of the things that incarceration does, no matter how accomplished you are or how unaccomplished you are, is it changes you forever. And that came across very clear. So what I saw was a man experiencing extreme suffering, even though he had once been at the top in our society, he worked for the president. (laughs) And so I thought if somebody like him with the most privilege, racial privilege, financial privilege, political privilege, is experiencing this much suffering, he did two years in prison for one count of wire fraud and one count of breaking a conflict of interest contract, two years for that. if he's experiencing this much, the majority of the people incarcerated in our country are not anywhere near, the majority of us aren't that privileged, then There has to be an enormous amount of harm happening around the country to individuals and families. So families like came across as super clear too. incarceration and criminal justice is not an individual experience in our country. And that's something that I think people are very unaware of. So the overwhelming majority, 90% of people who go to prison are connected to family. Over half of them have children under the age of 17. So when an individual becomes incarcerated in our country, it's a family experience. It's a child experience.
0: Let's go there. And I want to use that to spring We're back into your journey of launching the institute at Florida State University. I'll just call it like it is, Carrie, incarceration, quote unquote criminals, the prison system. Those are boogeyman words, right? right. Let's just call it what it is. Yeah. And like you mentioned, I'll try to be as diplomatic as I can. You have a very difficult political climate down there to deal with. And as you mentioned earlier, Was the leadership at Florida State University and the community in Tallahassee and Florida receptive to your vision for this institute when you first brought these ideas down there? I mean, again, because like I said, a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about today, these are very boogeyman terms. These are things, I don't know if taboo is the right word, but these things, they spook people, right? And I think a lot of it is because ignorance can create a lot of that. But what was it like when you first brought it to this community? Were you welcomed? Were you deer in headlights? What was that experience like?
1: Yeah. So let me comment on the political part just a second. So one of the great things about working in criminal justice reform work is that there is bipartisan support for criminal justice reform. So people have different motivators to be behind it. But all in all, there's outliers. There's people that are anti reform, but they're outliers. And so all the in between political party wise is not where I receive a lot of pushback. I think that the university knew that this is a really important social issue of our time. It's a civil rights issue. It's a health issue. It's a human rights issue. It's a social justice issue. We have a really great Department of College of Criminology already. Criminologists tend to be more focused on describing contributors to the problem. And what this research center is very much focused on is producing and disseminating solutions. So it was a very different approach than what this number one ranked college of criminology is doing is saying, we understand, you know, they're laying out the problem, which is incredibly important to do. And what our research center says, thank you for helping us to really understand the problem. We're laying out the solutions. So we built on some work that was already occurring here. And I think the university saw that and valued that. What I think is still true throughout the country is that people really have no idea how bad things are. They have no idea how bad things are. And people, speaking of the scary words, one of the things that I think people still perceive is that there are victims and there are offenders. But 96% to 99%, depending on what study you're looking at, of people who are incarcerated, men and women, have significant lifetime traumatic experiences. This does not mean they have not committed crimes. I'm not saying that. But they also have been victims. Victims at the hands of other people, also victims of cracks in the systems, cracks in our school system, and really problematic practices within our criminal justice system. So a lot of people just don't understand how bad it is When people get enmeshed into our system and how you, it's really a lifelong sentence, even if you get out of prison, and they don't understand all the contributors, many of which are health related, that drive people to involvement in the criminal justice system anyway.
0: Well, and thank you for setting that up because that is important to set the stage of what you have seen, where the temperature is in society, and to hear of the reception down in the community and at Florida State University, like you mentioned, kind of just continuing the path of being a leader in the nation of what's happening there in Tallahassee. So with that, Kerry, let's talk a little bit about current state. What is the Institute achieving today? Again, we're going to go into future state in just a moment, but also let's focus in on future state. You guys have recently completed some unique research into the mental health of incarcerated individuals specifically looking at the lifetime trauma experiences of incarcerated men you kind of just highlighted that just a bit so again let's talk a little bit about future state then of course because of our amazing community that tunes into this podcast let's also focus in on you know what have you guys been learning about in regards to the mental health side of things as well
1: yeah so i do want to talk about the current work that we're doing and that we've been building out for the past few years essentially the paradigm that drives criminal justice and corrections in our country is very much deficits focused. It's focused on all of people, their substance use disorders, they're fixing everything bad about them, right? Fixing everything wrong. And that's the paradigm. I'm not saying that there are lots of bad things or wrong things or whatever. So we as the research center have rejected that paradigm and said the way to to reduce the amount of people involved in the criminal justice system, the way to ensure that once people become involved in the criminal justice system, they get out and stay out. And the way to make the system better in and of itself is to focus on the well-being of everyone involved. And that's the mental well-being, the social well-being, the occupational well-being, the individuals that become involved in the system, arrested, incarcerated, on probation, whatever, as well as the professionals working in the system. So this is a piece that people miss, right? So we have been so focused on the individuals that become involved in the system as a country, as we should be, because we want them to thrive and do well and not have repeat contact. But the people that are working in the system, the professionals that are working in the system, their health, their mental health, impacts a person's experience that's become arrested. So let's do a concrete example. Take law enforcement officers. A lot of conversation around law enforcement in contact with citizens these days, right? This has become something that's been more sensitive to the general public. Law enforcement officers, I would argue, have, or data show us too, have a significant amount of exposure to trauma experience. There's high rates of PTSD among law enforcement officers. Untreated PTSD symptoms include impulsivity, misappraisal of danger, aggression, not accurately understanding what's going on in an emotionally charged dialogue. So when I talk about all of those symptoms, what does it make you think of? What's likely to happen if somebody's experiencing those symptoms while they're interacting with a citizen?
0: Not a good outcome.
1: Right. (laughs) A more likely use of force. So one of the things that we're doing is saying, let's make sure that our law enforcement officers that are interacting with citizens are mentally healthy. Let's make sure our corrections officers that are interacting with citizens are mentally healthy. Our prosecutors who are determining whether people go to jail or not are healthy because all of them are experiencing a significant amount of primary and secondary traumatic stress. So that's one approach. The other approach that we're doing is with the incarcerated individuals themselves. So going back to trauma. So psychological trauma, like I already mentioned, is experienced by almost all individuals that are incarcerated prior to their incarceration experience, during their incarceration experience, and after their incarceration experience. One of the things that neurobiology has taught us about psychological trauma is that there are times in your life that you are more susceptible to the negative impacts of psychological trauma, that those time periods differ between boys and girls, men and women. But for males, the time period is in adolescence, is when your brain is the most susceptible to the impacts of trauma. But among incarcerated men, the highest prevalence of psychological trauma is in adolescence, (laughs) And you heard me mention earlier the symptoms of untreated trauma symptoms, aggression, impulsivity, misappraisal of danger, likelihood of acting out, substance use disorders. Does this sound like our bohemian, Right? So what we're looking at is we say, if we get people on a path to mental well-being, to health, to thriving and achieving, to addressing some of these things that are contributing to the problems that are associated with them and be becoming involved in the criminal justice system. We don't have to keep removing deficits from people because they're not there.
0: But Carrie, there's so many questions I want to ask from what you just shared. This is an amazing conversation, but I want to hone in on one part of it because we hear this a lot. Yes, that sounds good, what you just described about getting to the person on the front end, making sure we take care of this while they're an adolescent. But Carrie, the devil's advocate, right? We can't afford that. We don't have the resources to do that. Yeah. Can we not afford that, Carrie? Because you're the expert here. If I think about an incarcerated individual and the resources it takes to keep that going versus the front end, you know, resources of getting to that adolescent you just described, which one is more sustainable?
1: Yeah. So let's talk about where the prevention point is, right? Because most people go directly to the prevention point is in during youth. And let's say, you know, school based interventions is a major prevention point, right, for youth. Well, kids are in school eight hours a day, and the other 16 hours a day, they're with adults that are in their family systems. So if you look at the 13 million people who cycle in and out of jail every year in the United States, over half of which who have children that they're being removed from and returned to and removed from and returned to. If those parents are doing well, do you think their children are more likely to do well or worse? It's simple. We're back to KISS. It's simple. When parents are doing better, children are doing better, right? And so our prevention point is, in fact, the adults that are cycling in and out of our prison, The adults have more influence on children than any kind of prevention program we can expose them to. That doesn't mean prevention programs don't work, but it's starting what we already know to be true is that parents' outcomes influence children's outcomes. doesn't mean they cause or prevent entirely or whatever, but they have influences back to costs. So we have calculated these costs. So when you look at the social and financial costs, which includes healthcare costs of incarceration as it occurs in our country right now, it's about $1 trillion a year. So I would say, can we afford not to work on prevention? Because what else costs us a trillion dollars a year? What other system costs us a trillion dollars a year with no really feeder mechanisms into financially sustaining it? That's entirely tax dollars.
0: Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that context. Obviously, this already sounds like, from my perspective, there might be a second edition of a podcast with you. There's so much to discuss with you, Carrie. This is a fascinating topic, a topic that needs to have more light shed on it. So, you, of course, you know, this is why we wanted to have you on this podcast. This is an important topic and it impacts and affects our communities across the nation. so, Carrie, let's also talk about where are things heading, right? Again, we mentioned it on a front end. Uh, things have changed rapidly over the past 18 months. Things are going to continue to accelerate the world is very different and will be very different in the coming months, coming years. So where do you see things heading on the macro from your viewpoint and an expert view into our society, into our nation? And then of course with that, where do you see things heading for the Institute as well?
1: Yeah. I would say on the macro level for society that we are at a point in time for our country, things have changed. We're at a point in time when there's a moral will, fiscal will, and political will to substantially rethink our criminal justice system. And I think that we are on the brink to where most people understand that currently our criminal justice system is responding to public health crises. They're not responding to criminal crises, criminal behavior crises. It's being used to respond to public health crises. So I think where a lot of the innovation will happen is coming up with public health solutions that can take away that power from the criminal justice system to be the first responder to public health crises, such as untreated trauma symptoms, such as substance use disorders, and people destabilizing because of those. And most actors in the criminal justice system don't want to have to be responsible for health or mental health. Their profession is about security and containment and supposed to be about responding to very, very dangerous people. But when they're responding to public health crises, those are two different things. So I think where a significant amount of innovation needs to occur is preventing adults from going back into the system or into the system by harnessing the power of technology that we have not done. Because right now, our healthcare systems and mental health are almost entirely reliant on human beings right? And we just don't have enough human beings to prevent a lot of the behavioral health crises that happen that result in then people coming into contact with the system. So I think this augmentation of technology with humans to respond to mental health and behavioral health issues is relevant for our whole general population, but it's especially relevant for our criminal justice and correction system, because it's almost entirely untapped. And there's a huge amount of potential there. And in terms of the future of IJRD, that's an area we're headed as well, is how do we use artificial intelligence and machine learning to augment human being interactions with individuals at various points in the criminal justice system? And we do have our first of its kind proof of concept project going on right now in Indiana, actually, with individuals under community corrections. But I just want to say for all the people out there, especially people that are entrepreneurs, but not necessarily experts in criminal justice and correctional health, is that it's incredibly complicated and wrought with ethical considerations. Because once people become involved in the criminal justice system, they lose a lot of rights that the rest of us have, privacy rights and all sorts of freedom, literally physical freedom. So there's an enormous amount of ethical boundaries that need to be established as technology enters into our criminal justice system beyond security and confinement, which is where most of technology lives right now. So I just want to put that little cautionary. So we're working to help along computer scientists and other innovators to help them establish not only what would be the most helpful for promoting mental health and well-being, but what are the ethical confines that we need to act, we need to behave within.
0: Well, I do know there's a lot of phenomenal entrepreneurs and innovative thought leaders that tune into the podcast that are working on these very, very difficult problems that I know can be solved. And like you mentioned, there just truly isn't enough human beings to take care of the entire need. And we're going to have to rely and adopt new and innovative and elegant ways to bring technology in to solve these big, audacious problems. But I know it's possible Because there's some incredible, incredible leaders out there working on this stuff tirelessly. So thank you for that, Carrie. But of course, we also want to be able to help you out. So what is one problem, need, or question that you have that we can be helping you with?
1: This goes back to something that I said earlier. And it's really so many people, they don't understand who gets involved in the criminal justice system, why they stay there, why they come back. And again, just how complicated and bad things are. And because they don't understand it, there is not incentive and potentially motivation to try to seek for and demand solutions. So one of our biggest problems that we're trying to solve is how do we help as many people as possible here? Not only that we're in a really bad situation that is driving poverty and racial disparities and all sorts and health disparities with our criminal justice system right now, that we're in this situation, but there's so many solutions too. So we're trying to get that message out to as many people as possible. So ways to get that message out. We're always thinking of new ways. I would love to do my own podcast, but I don't have enough human capacity myself to do human beings myself, but we're always trying to figure out how do we bring more visibility to our work and to the solutions. So that would be ways people could help if they helped spread the word.
0: Well, speaking of being able to help spread the word, they also need to be able to work with you to help spread the word. So, how do people get a hold of you and the team? Where are some social media handles, websites, or otherwise? How can we get a hold of you, Carrie?
1: Yeah. So, I have a little list of our ways to get a hold of us. So, our website is ijrd.csw.fsu.edu. And we can find us on Twitter which is at IJRD underscore FSU. On Facebook, we're at FSU.IJRD. And then in LinkedIn and YouTube, just searching IJRD. And then I will do my email because it's all over the web too, is cpettus, P-E-T-T-U-S, Davis, D A V I S at FSU.edu. And we would love to hear from you in any of those ways.
0: Awesome, Carrie. We'll also leave all of those contact points in the episode notes. So simply scroll down in your favorite podcast player and click on through to get a hold of Carrie and the team. Additionally, you can head over to our free global online community at passionatepioneers.com. There will be a post for Carrie's episode where we'll have all those contact points online and the opportunity to leave any comments, feedback, questions, or otherwise, again, over at passionatepioneers.com. Well, Carrie. Like I said, I could stay here all day chatting with you. This is an important topic, one that I love to learn from leaders and experts like you, because this is something we need to be talking about. So I applaud all that you and the team are working on. But before we let you go, I have one more piece for the podcast. It's a fill in the blank. I'm a passionate pioneer because?
1: I believe in human potential and I want to help individuals and families thrive.
0: I love it. Way to round it out, Kerry. Well, Carrie, thank you again for taking the time to be with us on the podcast today. We are rooting you on. This is important work. Thank you for your dedication, your passion, and your commitment to continue to move this important matter forward for our nation. But for now, Kerry, again, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you. It was great to be here.